about biblical sexuality. That's what we're doing today. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Uh, good morning. Let me, let me open us up in prayer. God, thank you for, for this morning, um, for this group of folks that you brought together to just sit under, under your teaching, God. Uh, help this really to be your teaching today. God, we lift up those who, with wildfire and, and weather and wind craziness going on, those who need, need peace, God, bring them peace. Those who need um, help, bring them help. Um, and just, just alleviate any fear um, that people may be feeling. And just, yeah, protection, Lord. We just ask for your protection upon us. Um, and as we dive into this topic, God, we just seek your will. Um, yeah, we just, we just want to serve you. And so let this be about you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so I'm, I'm legitimately excited to talk with you guys about this. And it might be, that might sound a little strange. Um, but this is, this, what we're sharing today and what, what Trey shared over the last couple weeks, kind of setting the stage and we're kind of building some momentum here. Um, it comes out of, of stuff that Trey's mentioned. He and I took a class down in Portland um, at Western Seminary. And... Um, if you think that this might be a little bit awkward, and, and like I said, kind of towards the end of last week, um, Trey, impromptu, thanks Trey, where are you, called me up, um, to, to say a word, and, I, and I, I said it would be three out of ten on the awkward scale, um, having, having written some more things, might be three and a half, so <laughs> just be prepared for that. If it gets a little, a little over awkward for you, just give me a, a head tap, and I'll, I'll, I'll see that, and, and we'll back off. Um, I'm actually kind of serious about that. Um, but we, Trey and I went and took this class, and if you can picture, you know, 15 pastors in a room for a week talking about sex, um, it's stuff that we've, that, that I, through, through that and through some of the readings, have gotten very comfortable talking about, um, so if, if it's a little too, too comfortable for you, yeah, please let me know. Uh, we're going to look at Romans 6, we're going to look at this passage now, and we're going to look at it again at the very end. Um, the, the theme for today, just so you see, kind of where we're going with this. Actually, I'll say it. I'm going to read this first from Romans 6. This is Paul talking to, to, in his letter to the Romans. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just a couple things to ex explain out of that first, and then we'll, we'll dive forward with some application. Um, that idea of being slaves to God. Um, think of it as being under the authority of God, under the teaching of God, uh, living, listening to God. Uh, Matthew 11.30, Jesus says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, that doesn't mean that the Christian life is easy. It just means that it's, carrying a yoke is not easy. It's literally a giant piece of wood that ties you to another oxen, and you have to carry that, plus whatever load it's pulling, plus you're tied to this other thing, okay? That's not an easy thing, but the yoke of Jesus is easy because it's the right yoke. Um, it's, the, it's the right burden to be carrying. And so, so being slaves of God, that is the right thing to be under authority of. Um, and then we see the idea of sanctification, specifically I love how Paul says this, um, sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. So there's an actual outcome of sanctification, which really is just becoming more and more like Jesus in, in heart and mind, 
becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, that's not forced behavior change. That's a renewal of the mind that, that leads to an outflow of, of certain behaviors. Um, but the sanctification comes from the heart and the mind. So we're going to come back to this passage. So just kind of store that away for the end. Okay, so in this series that we, we titled very cleverly, um, make sure I get it right, Good News for Every Body, okay? And I very cleverly titled this message, Good News for Everybody. Yeah, see, see what I did there? Um, and that, that's because this, this is a message, and, and really what we're doing is, is we're taking the gospel, and we're saying the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to our sexuality, and that is true for everybody and every body. Um, so where we've been in week one, Trey, Trey brought us into this, this concept of the historical Christian sexual ethic. Lori, if we could go to that slide. Um, specifically looking at 1 Corinthians 6.20. Um, nope, back one. Sorry, Lori. I told you, I, I, I told Lori before service today that she's going to be jumping all over the place. Um, so she's going to stay on her toes. Okay, so it, a couple weeks ago, Trey talked about the historic Christian sexual ethic, and we're going to dive into that. You'll see exactly what I mean if you miss that. Um, but a scripture that we looked at there, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.20, so glorify God with your body. We have a body. We do. It's a part of us. It's, it's, it's not something that is separate from us. It is part of us, and we have an opportunity to glorify God with our bodies. And then last week, Trey talked about your body matters because it's a gift, because it's eternal, and what you do with it is worship. And uh, from Romans, we looked at, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And so this week we're talking about the, the, the gospel applied to our sexuality. And you're going to see how, how today kind of really sets the stage for then future weeks looking at a biblical approach to specific current ethical dimensions of sexuality. And that's what you're here for, is those specific ethical dimensions, and we'll get there. Um, so like I said... Three out of ten on the awkward scale. Um, please help, help me hold to that. Um, and by the way, I, I hope, I legitimately hope that I say something that you disagree with. Um, and, and not because I'm right and you have everything to learn, but because this is difficult stuff that we need to and should be wrestling with. This is not stuff, I don't know if you've turned on your TV or opened up a magazine or been on the internet anytime in the last, I don't know, fill in the blank, doesn't matter. 10 seconds, you'll see something that says this is stuff that we need to be talking about. Um, and so we are. We need to be wrestling with it. So let's, let's wrestle together. Okay, here's the historical Christian sexual ethic um, that, that we've been looking at. The idea that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be expressed, and I inserted the word enjoyed in there, um, and I think that's actually an important part of this. Um, so, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be expressed and enjoyed only in the context of marriage, a lifelong covenanted exclusive partnership between one man and one, wo one woman for the sake of uniting and procreating. There are rules. Trey kind of laid out. There's, this is a, a, a statement that puts things in a box. There are rules. Um, friend of mine... Their neighbor just got a Lamborghini, and um, 
Eli and, and this, their, their son were kind of texting pictures and kind of talking about that and stuff. It's pretty, pretty cool, this Lamborghini just like right in the neighborhood. And it's, it's like, it's beautiful. That Lamborghini, you wouldn't take it rallying on the forest roads of the Campbell Global area back there. You just wouldn't, okay? That's not a rule, but it's, it would be a bad idea. It's not what it's for. It's not what it's intended for. That's kind of how I look at this Christian sexual ethic, okay? You could call it rules. You can call it intended purpose. Um, I, I, I would like to think of it as right uses, like we have a right use for our sexuality, um, and then there are also wrong uses. We're going to look at some, some things that have really opened up my eyes over the last couple years, um, and th- this may be old news for you, and, and you may be totally aware of it, especially maybe if you studied psychology or something like that, or literature, um, things that look at like the way people think. Um, it's not something that I've really looked a lot at until a couple years ago, um, but there are these ideas that we're just swimming in. Um, it's, it's part of our culture. It's everywhere. Um, and, you know, it, the saying, a, a fish doesn't observe water. Like, you can't, you can't ask a fish, you know, oh, are, are you in water? Like, what, what's water? Um, just like we didn't walk into the room today and say, oh, guys, there's air in here. Come on in here, there's air. Um, we might have said, oh, the air is warm today, or it's really moving today, it's windy. Um, but the fact of air is not something that we observe. These, these cultural... Um, ideas and concepts that we're going to look at here, um, Lori, if we could go to the next slide, are things that, that are everywhere. And if you're anything like me, if you haven't really thought much about this before, as you start to think about this and you see these things, you'll see that they're everywhere and you'll see how they play out. So we're going to look at them and then we're going to apply them to, to sexuality and kind of contrast with biblical sexuality. Um, the first, first idea is this idea of expressive individualism. It's the idea that each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. That's how we find meaning. It's individual, and it needs to be expressed, okay? Um, it, just, it's, it's, it just explains so much to me. Um, it, it helps me understand why people feel the way they do about things. Um, yeah. And then the, the other very much related concept is, is called the culture of authenticity, um, each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or previous generations or religion or religious or political authority. In other words, we, we have our own way of realizing who we are and we need to find that. Okay, I'm not saying that. This says that. Um, and it's, it's everywhere in culture. Um, thinking back on like what I read in high school literature classes, it's there. I, re- I heard an interview with, uh, I, I may cite this wrong, so I apologize to whoever actually said it if I say it wrong, but I think it was Tim Keller um, talking about a study that N.T. Wright had done, um, or one of his grad students had done, something like that, finding that like 90 or 94% or something like that of modern literature is simply the story of people figuring out who they are. That's really what, that's, that's what our culture is. That's what our stories tell, is people figuring out who they are. You have to go out and find it. You have to seek it. You have to decide. And, ooh, realizing that and, and thinking about things a little differently in light of that, um, it, it's really helped me understand. Um, some, understand the way 
the reason that we see some of the things that we do in society. And we'll get a lot more specific with that in a little bit. I want to point out, though, because this is the water we swim in, because this is the air that we breathe, and because we're fallen human beings, um, we are all expressive individualists. We all think this way, okay, to some extent. Hopefully, hopefully less and less as we are sanctified and, and God changes our hearts and renews our minds. Um, but we all are out there trying to find meaning. We all want to express ourselves um, as, much as, we, as much as we feel the need to. Um, yeah. And because our bodies are a hugely important part of us, not disconnected from ourselves, um, this applies to sexuality. So we have this statement, this modern sexual ethic, um, that is, it's an attempt to kind of bring together, hey, expressive individualism, culture of authenticity, kind of how does this play out in, in sexuality? And it says, I am the most important person in the world. My sexuality is the most important thing about me. Thus, it is my duty or right or need to express my feelings and desires in all areas, but most importantly in my sexuality. I only need to be concerned about two things, my felt needs and the consent of others. Okay? If you... And again, this is just one of those things. It's, it's helpful to kind of explain where people are at, explain why our culture is the way it is, explain why we see what we see. I don't believe that the world is full of crazy people. I don't actually believe that the world is full of evil people. Um, I believe that the world is full of, of people who are doing their best and are starting with some wrong presuppositions. And that's, and that's what this statement is. That's what honestly breaks my heart about this statement, because it's in me too. And it's in all of us. It's based on that first sentence. I am the most important person in the world. If you are the most important person in the world and you throw in some expressive individualism and you then over-sexualize our whole society, this is what you get, 100%. Like, it's logical. It makes sense. Nobody's out there trying to, well, I don't want to say nobody. Most people are not out there trying to destroy the world or try, trying to... Trying to do bad things. They're doing the best they can. Um, but it, it starts with this, this first statement. Um, so as, as we, we're going to talk a, a good bit about this, but as we do, I want to make sure that it's not, not a straw man argument. That I'm just putting this up on the screen so that we can sit here and rip it to pieces. Um, that's, that's not the point. And I, I, we could, but I think that would be pretty unproductive. Um, I want to just point out this is a logical internally consistent statement that is put forth by well-meaning people. There's a reason that this is so prevalent. If this wasn't appealing or logical, nobody would believe it, right? Um, but we see this all over our, our society because it makes sense. Um, it's appealing. It's also easy. Um, I wasn't sure if I'd share this or not, but we have time. I have a, a, a theory um, that I'm not totally sure I believe, but that this statement, um, part of the reason that it's so prevalent is that it's easily commercialized. This, this statement can be sold, whereas the biblical sexual ethic can't be sold. And I know that sounds like I'm going to move to Idaho and live in a bunker, and I'm not, I'm not, trying, to, <laughs> I'm not trying to be that, but I just, I just wonder, especially lately, I mean, just honestly, just watching sporting events and... Um, you know, fortunately, you know, you can mute commercials, you can fast forward through commercials, whatever, but oh my gosh, uh, this 
statement is being sold. Um, and I, I think that's part of the reason, not, not the whole reason by any stretch, but part of the reason that is so, so out there. Um, yeah. So let's put our historical Christian sexual ethic back up there. And we're going to kind of compare and contrast a little bit. Um, right uses for the gift versus anything goes. And there are only two guardrails, okay? So you want to drive your Lamborghini on the forest roads? Go for it. Expressive individualist. That's your felt need. Um, the roads give you consent to do that. Go for it. Um, it's not the right use for the Lamborghini, but it's there. Um, the, the first one is from God, and the second one is from self. It's self-defined. And isn't it interesting that we would take something that is... I, I, just, I just realized this this morning. Um, we would take something that is entirely relational in sexuality, and we would make it all about yourself. Um, it's, just, it's just really ironic. Um, it's a covenantal commitment in the first one versus the low, low bar of consent only in the second one. Um, in the first one, we have man and woman as similar, very, very similar if we think about it, but yet also complementary uh, partners versus the second one is just any partner. Uh, the only thing you need is, again, your felt needs and consent. Um, yeah, complementary partners. If you need me to draw a picture for you, let's, let's talk after service. Um, high, high view of sex in the first one. Okay, actually valuing it. It's something to be valued and treasured versus the second one is just whatever. It's casual. It's, it's, it's disconnected from, from the self. Uh, it's, it's just your body. There's, just, there's tons of encouragement out there, um, even in like teen magazines, um, to not, not take sex seriously and just, yeah, really disconnect yourself from it, uh, which, which is interesting because, again, the, the second statement says, my sexuality is the most important thing about me. So the sexuality can be really, really important, but sex itself is just kind of a, a casual thing. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. Um, that first statement, traditional biblical sexual ethic, is lifelong uh, versus spending a life kind of chasing the next high. Um, yeah, so I said I didn't mean to set this up as a straw man argument, and then I did. Uh, but but I, it's important that we, because we could, I could literally just stop here, and, and this, this would be the end, and we'd be just like any other conservative cultural commentator, um, inserts name of your favorite conservative cultural commentator here, and that would be it, okay? And, and we could do that, and I think maybe that plays a role, and it's, there's some entertainment there, and they're sharing truth, whatever, but that's not church. That's not our role, is just to, to set up a straw man argument and knock it down. Um, we, have, we have a lot more to do with this. Um, we, we want to affect change in our culture, and I want to really push us today on, we want to affect change within us as well. Because again, that, that expressive individualism, that modern sexual ethic, we have that. I, I don't know your, like all of your details. Maybe you don't. Um, if you have a way of, of living without any of that modern sexual ethic within you, I would like to take you out for coffee and, and learn how, um, how you have completely conquered that. Um, but we all have, I think, a little bit of this within us. Um, and it's, it's something that we need to, we need to, yeah, 
We need to get at what's within inside us, not just what's out in, in the world. And I also want to say, like, if, if you or somebody you know, well, that's, let me say that differently, you or somebody you know is committed to that modern sexual ethic. Um, and if, if you are, or as you're talking to them and they are, that's okay, okay? It makes sense. Understand that. Um, give them some grace. Give yourself some grace. That is, a, again, it's a logical, appealing, easy statement uh, to want to go along with, especially when we're just ugh, bombarded with images uh, from outside. So Trey and I were kind of emailing about this um, throughout the week, and um, he asked a question that actually, he asked a question regarding a slightly different topic, and I, I, I took that question hostage and I put it on this next slide. And as we look at the, these two things again, they both, in, this, is, this is what Trey wrote in an email, they both entail, and by the way, isn't it amazing, this, words like this, they just like flow out of him. Like he didn't even try, this is just like <laughs> a casual email. Um, yeah. They both entail a vision of flourishing, but which is real? The one that says we can shape the world after our image, or the one that says we are made in his image and have an obligation to flourish according to our design. They both entail a vision of flourishing. Like, the, the question is, and I think this is the question as we actually go through the rest of the series. The question is, which is real? Which, which vision of flourishing um, are we, are we going to follow? Um, Trey mentioned last week uh, an article written by Christine Emba. Um, Christine Emba actually wrote a whole book on, on some of the same stuff that's in that article. So I'm going to talk about it a little bit. It is, it's really interesting. Uh, she grew up a Christian, I believe Baptist, and then early 20s, late teens, walked away from the faith, went full-on modern sexual ethic and, and all that that means. Um, she, she totally lived that life um, through, through her 20s and then realized and started talking to people and realizing, wait a second, we're all doing this? Nobody's happy with this. Nobody actually likes this. Um, and, and, and yes, it's just one person's opinion, but it's a really, really interesting perspective for her as, as a non-Christian to be looking at this, this modern sexual ethic and looking at the, the impacts of, of uh, expressive individualism on our sexuality. And she's just saying, this, this isn't working. Um, so she starts interviewing, starts doing research, and, and writes this book. Um, basically, you know, a couple things she shares rates of sexual activity are actually down, okay? Not that, not that our goal is, I'm not up here saying people need to be having more sex. I'm just saying, like, the, the goal of this modern sexual ethic is more freedom and, and like, it, we, should, some, we should be doing all the time and no restrictions and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's, it's actually not happening. Um, pornography addiction is way up, and it's really impacting men's capacity for actual sexual intimacy, uh, people who are having sex are not happy with it. Um, they're just kind of going through the motions. She has some really interesting stories that she tells about that. Um, so the modern sexual ethic is not only the wrong sexual ethic, it's, it's even failing at, at what, it's, what it is trying to do. Um, and I tried so hard to think of an analogy to kind of explain this to you. And it's a really bad, I'm going to share it, but it's really bad. So, so be prepared to listen generously um, the modern sexual ethic is like, okay, you're trying to, you're trying to cut down a tree. That's, that's your goal. You're going you're gonna to go cut down a tree. So you go in your, in your yard shed, 
you got all your, your yard tools in there, and you see this thing, and it's got, it's got a motor, it's got a blade, um, you think, oh, that should be able to cut down a tree. Okay, so you grab it, and you, you wheel it out there, because it's a lawnmower. It's the wrong tool. It looks like it should be the right tool, kind of. I mean, if you really, you know, look generously at it, it, it could be the right tool for the job, but it's the wrong tool for the job. But actually, it kind of works. Because okay? if you could start it up and get that blade splint and you could like, like hold it up against the tree and like grind up some branches or something, like it kind of could work. Okay? And it maybe kind of does work. But this particular lawnmower, it won't start. It doesn't work. Okay? But yet you button your head up against the wall, you pick up the lawnmower and you start swinging it against the tree, <laughs> trying to chop the tree down. Okay, that's the end of the analogy. Thank you for, for listening generously. The point is, the modern sexual ethic is not only like pointed in the wrong direction, like it's, it's failed from the beginning, it's actually failing at what it, what it said it should do. Um, so, and, and again, Christine Emba's book, um, I think, paints that picture well. But again, we cannot, the, the, the real harm would be is if we just sat here, looked at this stuff, you heard from me, you held your nose in the air, and you pointed down at everybody else, about how, how wrong they were. I think that would be a real shame. Um, Paul Tripp, in one of his books, says, we must endeavor to never merely be right. We must endeavor, and it takes effort, to never merely be right. Okay, we can be right about this and lose. Um, so what do we do with this? This is what we're here to talk about today. What do we do with this? I'm going to put four things forward that I think we can do with the situation that we're in. Uh, number one is to keep in mind that we've been here before, and we'll, we'll dive into that. Uh, number two is that to realize God makes a way, um, and that way is through grace, and that his method of doing that is, is through the gospel. Um, so we're going to look at those four. And again, as we're diving into these, think about culture, but gosh, it'd be a real shame to think about culture and miss what's like right inside of you, okay? So I think we can all, all think about this in, in those two different ways, externally and internally. Okay, so we've been here before. What do I mean by that? Um, ancient Rome was a terrible place uh, for, for a sexual ethic. Uh, we have a sexual ethic today based on consent. They had a sexual ethic based on power. I mean, it just was. If, if somebody who had more power than another person um, was ethically, morally, legally um, able to do whatever they want with somebody who was less powerful than them. And I don't need to go into too much more detail about what that could possibly lead to. Um, just some really terrible stuff with the sexual ethic of power. Uh, pornographic images were everywhere. Art, carvings, idols, door handles. Um, yeah. Uh, we, think, we think abortion is, um, at, at, at the very least, uh, very, very gritty and disturbing. Um, they dealt with that through exposure, which is essentially leaving babies out. We don't want this baby. Um, we can't have our sexual um, lives disturbed, so we're going to leave it out, and it's just going to die out there, and that's it's terrible. Um, this, why do I bring this up? This was the environment that Christianity first flourished in. This terrible environment of a sexual ethic is where Christianity first 
took off and flourished because Christians were different. Christians were, were specifically very different in their sexual ethic. Um, they, they made a name for themselves by being different. Um, one thing in particular, there's a story, and I, I don't remember all the details, but I believe there was, there was a Roman emperor who, who came to Christ really by asking questions about why are these people going around picking up all these babies that were left out for exposure? Um, what, what is with that? What is going on there? Um, we have an opportunity in, in this day and age to be different. And God has used situations like this before. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Um, I, just, I just want us to see, not only is God not surprised by the situation that we're in right now, um, he's, he's been here before and Christianity flourished in that. Uh, and, and honestly, Christianity really turned the tides. Those things I described about the, the Roman sexual ethic, for the most part, um, they disappeared. And, and Christianity had a big part to do with that. Uh, the second thing that's, that we should do with this, we're in this situation, what do we do with it? How do we think about this? Um, God makes a way. God makes a way. I, I could just hold this book up and, and just say, God makes a way. And that would be like the summary. That's the summary that you need of the Bible, I think. There's a million examples of this. Um, one very uh, obscure one, we're going to look at it from Leviticus 5. I, I honestly, I, I, I debated sharing this particular one, but it's something that's honestly it's been on my heart for, for a few weeks. I, I came across it in a podcast, a uh, podcast called 40 Minutes in the Old Testament. Um, it literally is just two guys talking Old Testament for 40 minutes, and that's it. Uh, pretty simple. And they just go through the Old Testament. Anyway, long story short, they were in Leviticus a, a month or so ago, and this, the, a couple of points they made from this passage really stood out to me as fascinating. Um, so this is, again, in Leviticus. So God is talking through Moses to the Israelites, um, specifically about how they can, when things aren't perfect and there's sin, how can they reconcile with God? So it says, if anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify... In other words, he's asked to testify. He has something to say in regards to a trial or something like that. And though he is a witness, he does not speak. So that's a sin. And it actually lists, a, we're skipping, we're just cruising through Leviticus 5 here, so I'm not going to read everything, but there's, it lists a couple other sins there as well. It says, He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. Okay, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You did something bad here's how you make up for it. But there's more. God goes on and says, but if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord two turtle doves or two pigeons, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering, and he shall be forgiven. Basically, there's this standard. There's this thing you can do. If you can't do that, God made a way. There's another thing you can do that also is fits the same purpose. Um, and if you can't afford that, there's another thing you can do. And a tenth of an ephah of flour is something that everybody would have had. Um, I did a little research. Wikipedia says that a tenth of an ephah is 43.2 chicken eggs volume. I don't think that's true. I think somebody on Wikipedia is, is messing with us. So I did a little more research. And a tenth of an ephah is basically like a, like a sack of flour. Like, I don't know, it's a pound or what, but you go into the grocery store and buy that much flour. So it's not like, like basically God is making a way in this passage 
for everybody to be able to, to take part in this reconciling with God. That is a really obscure example to apply to this very big concept that we actually see over and over again in Scripture. We were hanging out in the living room last night, and Eli and Cheryl were there, and I said, hey, give me, give me uh, four or five things that, in the Bible that God does um, where it, it, it seems like the way forward is impossible, but God makes it happen. Um, God makes a way. And they just rattled off, parting the Red Sea. Eli goes, well, all of Jesus' miracles. Um, feeding the 5,000 with, uh, with three fish fillets. Um, res- resurrection of Jesus. How about that for, for God making a way where the way forward seemed impossible? Um, and how about literally the forgiveness of sins of every believer? Um, God makes a way. He does. And I won't pretend to know what the way exactly looks like um, as far as what's going to happen next in this cultural moment, but I have faith, and we've seen it over and over again. God makes a way. Um, In in fact, if I did have an idea of of what exactly I think is going to happen, I wouldn't share it because it's probably wrong. Um, Because God's way is going to be much better than mine, anything that I could come up with. Um, And again, that applies externally, and that applies internally. To the extent that we are all living by that modern sexual ethic, um, God makes a way through that for us. And that way is grace. So that's our next thing as far as what do we do with this. Um, Lori, if we could go to the next slide. The, uh, grace. Preston Sprinkle um, wrote, he's written a lot, he's written a few books. Um, actually, Lori, could we go to the very last slide? I always struggle with, with how, to, how to share resources with you guys. Um, not everybody needs to read all these things, certainly not. Um, if, if you want to just sit here and listen to the stuff that Trey and I have to say, and that's kind of all you, that's as deep as you need to go with it, great, that's totally fine. If you wanted to go farther with any of this, or if any of this sparks some interest to you and you think it's particularly relevant, I want to make sure you guys have, have good resources that, that at least that I've found helpful and that, that Trey and I have been looking at um, in some of this stuff. So uh, Preston Sprinkle, if you want to take a picture of this slide for later, whatever, um, but uh, he's, Preston Sprinkle does the best job that I have seen of, of sharing truth, like absolute truth, but with such grace and such a, I think, a correction to what Christian culture can sometimes do of like, I'm just going to share truth and I'm right and I'm going to stick my nose in the air and you're wrong and I win. And I think when we do that, we don't actually win. So I, he does a great job of, of, of setting that up for us. I, I mentioned Christine Emba's book, Rethinking Sex, a Provocation, and I'll warn you, it is provocative. Um, it's not for everybody. Um, it's at least PG-13 in parts. Uh, Carl Truman's book, uh, really, really helpful to me in terms of how the heck did we get here? What, what happened throughout culture to get us to the point we are now? Um, love the way he thinks about stuff. Don't necessarily love his tone sometimes, but uh, really helpful. And then Todd Wilson, little book. It'll take you two hours to read. Um, called Mere Sexuality. He's actually the, the person who taught the class that Trey and I took. And this, this sermon series is kind of based on this book. So if you don't want to come to church for a while, just read the book. Um, <laughs> right, Trey? <laughs> uh, also, I noticed after I put this list together, all of these books are great audiobooks read by the author. Um, so you don't even have to read anything. You can just fit it into your life. You can, you can partake in this stuff while you're washing dishes. Okay, Lori, can we go back to, to the slide on grace? 
So Preston Sprinkle says in his book, Embodied, he says, Christian churches have a heavenly mandate to stand against destructive ideologies. This includes some of the radical narratives that have emerged from trans and gender-affirming communities. It also includes the destructive ideologies of legalism, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. And I added the word ouch in there, because that's a big ouch when you really, if you really think critically about the way that, well, I'll speak for myself. If I think critically about the way that I have thought and processed um, decisions that others are making, um, yeah, that's an ouch. I'll read that again. It also includes the destructive ideologies of legalism, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. These latter ideologies could be even more destructive than the former when they're dressed up in religious garb. It's all too easy to vilify the sins of others and shame them for struggling in ways that we do not. But God sees the heart of every person and knows that the ground is level before the cross. The one who stands furthest from the grace of God is the one least willing to extend that grace to others. Um, there's a lot about grace in there. And I want to I be clear that affirmation, just taking things that you know are sin and calling them not sin um, for the sake of making other people feel good, affirmation is not grace. Affirmation is a, is a cheap substitute for grace. Um, but legalism, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness are also not... I mean, it's a, it's a sinful response, um, I would say. And I, I mentioned this last time I was up here, but this idea, okay, so what do we do with this? The thought, it's not fully flushed out yet, but it is hospitality. This is a quote from Todd Wilson, who I just mentioned. Is hospitality the redemptive move between affirmation and mere tolerance. And maybe there's something there. Um, yeah. So we need to give grace. How does grace come? It comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is really where we're at today. And this is going to carry us forward into the things that we're going to talk about um, in the next few weeks. We're going to look at Romans 3, 23 to 25. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So there's no distinction. Nobody is a worse sinner. And that, you may hear that two different ways. You may, say, you may hear that and say, oh yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm elevating myself, but really nobody is a worse sinner than me. I need to actually, you know, bring them up to my level, not look down on them so much. And that, that would be a correct way to, to hear this. It would also be a correct way to hear this to say, man, I have really been beating myself up. I, I really feel like I'm a terrible person, like I am the worst sinner in the world. You're not, okay? Um, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, it, it, <laughs> to make things awkward... Uh, as, as we, it, when we end, which we will in a minute here, I promise, um, and, and you're, you're chatting with people um, after church, you are talking to somebody who has fallen short of the glory of God. You are. And so are they. Okay? And that's okay because God has made a way. God has made a way for that. Um, and this, this is the way. This, this scripture is one of my favorites in terms of describing that way. Um, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are justified. That's a legal term. Basically, it means the trial has happened. It's over. You have been declared innocent. You're justified. Well, then you'd ask, logically, you'd say, okay, 
great news, but how did that happen? Um, God did this with his grace. It says through, we're justified by his grace as a gift, not something that we've earned. We don't get many things in life these days without earning them. Um, It's really hard to wrap our heads around this part of it. Uh, Tim Keller says that if, if if you think you understand the gospel, you don't. If you're really wrestling with the gospel and all of its implications, and how does this work, and, and what does this mean for me, and what does this mean for the people around me, yeah, you're, you're starting to get it. Um, but if you think you've got it, you don't. This is a gift. It's a mind-blowing, undeserved, God-made-away gift from God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, So how does this happen? It happens through Philippians 2. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus became a man. Jesus had a body. Okay, Think about that. And we're going to partake in, in in the body of Christ here in a minute. Jesus was, was on earth, every step of the way, embodied, okay? He was a, he was a slimy, dirty little baby boy um, coming out of the womb, sorry, um, and, and he, was, he, was a, he was a teenager, uh, he, he, was a, he was a man. Not, I think you guys can handle this. Jesus actually had a sexuality. That doesn't mean he was sexually active, but he had a sexuality, Okay? He was, he was gendered. He, he experienced life the same way that we do. Um, it's just, it's mind-blowing and that we get to participate in that and that he did that for us. And I haven't even finished this, the verse yet. Um, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. We didn't deserve that. God didn't have to do that. Um, Jesus could have come in a lot of different forms. Um, he, he, he maybe could have come as, as some kind of spiritual being. Um, there are other non-embodied spiritual beings, angels, for example, um, but Jesus didn't come that way. He came as a, as a man, as a person with a body um, to experience life the same way we do and then to die, live the perfect life, die, be buried, and be resurrected so that we can experience forgiveness. Um, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And again, if you're sitting there thinking, oh yeah, I got it. Um, Tim Keller would say, you probably don't. Uh, if you're sitting there thinking, how does this work? Um, how, how do I apply this? Um, then, then maybe you're getting somewhere. Um, he took our place on the cross, like physically, not spiritually, ethereally, kind of Jesus living in our hearts kind of thing. Like this is, a, this is an actual thing that actually happened. Jesus taking our place on the cross. And then, <laughs> and then he demonstrated once and for all that he's God 
by, by being raised from the dead and appearing to all these witnesses. Um, just mind-blowing. And we get to receive that gift. Receive, not earn. Receive. <sighs> and not just us. Not just us. Everybody. Okay? Christianity gets a bad rap for being exclusive. It's the most inclusive thing in the world. Everybody can come to Christ. Now, there's one way to do it. You can't, you can't come to the Lord without admitting that he's Lord and believing that he's Lord and making him Lord of your life. But for anybody who does that, um, they get to come to Christ. So, okay, so again, what do we do with this, this cultural moment that we're in? Um, we've been here before. Keep in mind, God makes a way. It's through grace, and it's with the gospel. Um, understanding, applying the gospel. Again, all of this, it's all internal and it's all external. Don't make it just one or the other. Um, it's both. So worship team is going to come up here. And uh, I got two more scriptures to, to talk through. And then we're going to actually participate, like I mentioned, in like the, the visual for it is actually pretty cool. Jesus has literally made a way. Okay, and it's an it's a aisle way between chairs. Um, is representing the way that Jesus has made for you to come and experience and partake in, in his body and blood that are up here. It's just amazing. And, and I want you to think as you're doing that, it's internal and it's external. Who are the people? Who are, who are the people groups? Who are the individuals, the family members in your life that you're like, there's no way. There's no way they're ever going to accept this. They're they are, again, it's internal too. I, they, whoever are so caught up in that modern sexual ethic or so caught up in, in whatever, whatever it might be. There's no way. And I, I, I'm not God. I, I don't know when or how um, or, or even if, but I do know that there is a way. And, and God has shown us that over and over again. So we're going to sing one more song um, after I read these two scriptures. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. But what fruit were you getting at the time from things from which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, the song that we're going to sing is called King of My Heart. And as, as we're singing it, it, it's really, it's a love song to Jesus. Um, as we're singing it, try to picture this actual, physical, embodied, existed, currently embodied in heaven, Jesus that we are singing to and who, again, the cheesy visual, prepared a way an aisle between chairs or whatever that way might be for us to come and, and participate with him. It's just astounding.